Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Tristan Casabianca, a syndenologist who has done some amazing research into the carbon-14 dating fiasco, as well as the Prey Codex. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, Tristan. Tristan lives in uh, Ayakio, France. Hopefully I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, quite good. And, <laughs> okay. And, uh, but he studied uh, law, economics, and public administration. And he's written a handful of papers, including The Shroud of Turin, a histor historiographical approach, Turin Shroud Resurrection and Science, One View of the Cathedral, Radiocarbon Dating of the Turin Shroud, New Evidence from Raw Data, the ongoing historical debate about the Shroud of Turin and the referring to the case of the Prey Codex. And he's spoken at a handful of international conferences on the Shroud and his articles have won awards from Archaeometry for being the most downloaded. So uh, welcome, uh, Tristan. So glad to have you. Yeah. Hi, Guy. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So uh, tell us, uh, what is your backstory on getting involved in the Shroud of Turin? So you know I was born in Corsica in 1982, and it's a small island in the Mediterranean that I left when I was 18. So it's an island where almost every day I saw an Italian island called Elba from Bastilla, the city where I grew up. And I was brought up, one can say, in an environment that is quite italophile. And step by step, I learned a lot from this experience that led me to have to meet many artists, directors who came to my home to meet my parents in particular, and I also traveled, thanks to my parents, in Italy. And the first time I think I heard about the Shroud of Turin, I was about 16 or 17 years old. And at that time, I was not a Christian at all. I was raised in a family that was not Christian at all, so I was not baptized. So I was living inside this atheist family. I was opposed, you could say, to Christianity. And in our house, I had come across an esoteric book, which was very successful at the time. And in retrospect, I think I can say that it was very bad. And it talked about the Shroud of Turin as having carried the image of the Grand Master of the Temple Order, whose name was Jacques de Molay, who was buried in the early 16th century. And at a time, I think it seemed pretty plausible to me. But I have to say, that's a little memory I have of it, because I didn't really care much about it. And so I left. I went on my way, leaving Corsica. I studied history at the Sorbonne, and gradually I became interested in Christianity. I became interested in the Shroud of Turin. At the beginning, I did it rather through esotericism, which interested me rather, and through the history of esotericism. 
And so in the beginning, I was really interested in understanding how this belief of esotericism could turn out to be, let's say, believed by some people. What were the mechanisms, but also the mechanisms that played in me because it really interested me. And little by little, I was led to remember the Shroud of Turin, and I studied it more and more in depth. And in particular, thanks to the emergence of a tool that did not exist when I was 16 to 17 years old, which was the Internet. And I had access from then on, when I was a student, to all the biggest libraries in Paris. And then when I went down for my law studies in Aix-en-Provence and to the libraries of Aix-en-Provence, it is there that I was able, thanks to the internet and thanks to the libraries to which I had access, to really make a culture about the Shroud of Turin and to read thoroughly all the studies. And so I studied it thanks to Barry Schwartz's site, which must be quite renowned and which I thank for that. It is called Shroud.com. Thanks to him, I could really build up a culture and follow the news of the Shroud of Turin step by step. And so I was really interested in this question of authenticity. And one day I would say that I really ended up being more and more convinced by the Catholicism. And in 2010, I became more and more familiar with what is called analytic philosophy, which is a philosophy that is not at all known in Corsica and in France as it can be in the United States or in Great Britain, where it really holds the upper hand. Here in France especially, at that time, it was frankly ignored. We preferred what we call continental philosophy, which in a most representative example is perhaps that of Nietzsche, that is to say a philosophy that really leaves room for discourse. I would say that it is a little the spirit of the Solons of Versailles that influences philosophy. When I discovered analytic philosophy, thanks to the internet, thanks to YouTube, thanks to the debates that I could see on the existence of God in particular, the debate that was done by William Lane Craig, by Alvin Plaint Tiger, people like that. So I started to read, and really, it produced a revolution in me, and I became interested in a book by Michael Licona, which is called The Resurrection of Jesus a new historiogeographical approach. And when I read this book, I suddenly said to myself, what if we applied these research criteria to the Shroud of Turin? So if we applied the traditional historiographical criteria using for these criteria only the most certain facts among all the historiography, if we applied only these criteria, what would it give? And I went headlong into it, and I said to myself, I'm going to do it. And I can still see myself writing, diving into the literature to find the facts that were the least questioned. 
And from there, I proposed this article to several French journals. At first, I wanted to publish it in French. And then, as they refused it for reasons, I must say, ideological, without really studying the paper, well, I proposed it to an English journal. I wrote it in English. I proposed it to an English journal that it should be published, that is to say, to Trope Journal. We were in 2013, and it was my first article, and from there I continued my research. I participated in national conferences. And there you go. The story continued. My second paper was in 2016, and there it was, just as much I would say, to challenge my consensus that prevailed this time among historians who claimed, let's say, that there could be no historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And I showed, notably, through the example of the Shroud of Turin, why this could not be the case. And so I tried, again, to publish it, and it worked again. So this time, it was in another newspaper. Well, listen, from there, I was off and running. I was doing conferences, it was 2017, and that's how I really got interested in the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, very interesting, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, but uh, let's start talking about the, uh, you know, the real question here. So, in 1988, there were three labs that tried to use radiocarbon dating to determine the age of the shroud. So, tell us about what they did, how they took the samples, and then what happened leading up to the sample taking and then what their results were. So to put this dating in context, 10 years earlier, in 1978, there had been the first real scientific investigation of the Shroud of Turin, which had taken place with the STIRP. So we had the right, thanks to this team of mostly American scientists, therefore 24 hours a day, five days a week, to a really very tight study of the Shroud of Turin, which had given rise to about 20 publications in scientific journals. And their conclusions had struck with the spirits because during a synthesis a little more mediatized, they had spoken about mystery and progress, and they recommended to carry out another measure which knew a growing success which was a radio dating. So between 1982 and 1988, there was this question of how to proceed with a new dating. And from there, there were rather tight discussions. One could even say sometimes relentless to ensure that a dating could indeed take place and that solid, reliable protocols could indeed be put in place. And I would say that the climate was sometimes openly suspicious. So in nature, for example, you can find a trace of a historian who had even suspected that the Vatican could make substitutions of samples in order to facilitate an ancient dating. Or you could try to find out if there was really a suspicion about a procedure that would be controversial to leave still ambiguity to the Vatican in case of medieval dating. So it was a very unsettled climate and it was widely felt on April 21st, 1988, 
when the collection took place in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin. Afterwards, there were also several hours of discussions on the spot. Luigi Garnell, accompanied by two textile specialists, the Italian Franco Dexter and the French Gabriel Veil, they decided to make a cut on one end of the fabric. In fact, it was on the right edge of the frontal image. The dating was not done as expected at different points of the shroud, and from that point on, we had a surface that was cut off, which was more important than expected. So we wondered why certain laboratories had been eliminated. At the beginning, we thought that there would be seven laboratories. In fact, there were only three which were Oxford, Arizona, Tucson, and Zurich. And why some laboratories had been eliminated to the great despair of some. And so the whole thing really didn't make sense anymore because each lab ended up with a piece of tissue that was about, in theory, 50 milligrams. But we realized that this was not at all the case since the Arizona piece was about 40 milligrams plus 12 milligrams. And this last piece, as we will see later, was not tested at all. So we had, in fact, a protocol that had been intended, that had been put in place, and that was not respected at all. So one wonders why, in fact, in 87, Cardinal Bellestrero made the choice to leave only three laboratories. And this climate, finally, was not at all serene. And it gave way to what we know, that is, to a procedure that is still tainted with suspicion today. And unfortunately, in fact, I would say that the first failure of adaptation was not to silence this climate of suspicion of the control samples of the laboratories. Three control samples that are going to be brought in, whose ages the laboratories will know. Again, one wonders why, when this was not supposed to be the case. It will even cause surprise in the article for the editors of Nature when they read the paper since I had access to the documentation. The editor of Nature says he is very surprised that the control adaptation was of a known age for the laboratories. Obviously, it looked pretty abnormal. It may be an understatement to say so, but I would say that there were serious breaches of protocol. There were incomprehensible errors in the writing, but I would say that this does not call into question the conclusion of the radio dating. It just leads to two notable consequences, which are the first one is related to the increase of the vigilance about the publication, because the publication of nature is not going to transcribe correctly the course of events. We now know that. And I would say that the second consequence will be more unfortunate, i.e. it will not eliminate the suspicion that the laboratories have ridged the publication. And that, frankly, is perhaps the main mistake that was made, because we started out with a few years where there were really very open suspicions and we really questioned the intellectual honesty of researchers. 
So there was no need to go so far with so few elements available. So there you have it. I think that was really the heart of this carbon dating. In 1988, there was an unfortunate disorganization, a protocol that unfortunately was not respected and samples were not taken all around the shroud, but only on one end and on the end that had perhaps been the most affected. From there, the most chemically doubtful. And so we could really question at the time the homogeneity in relation to the rest of the cloth. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, you were uh, really instrumental in understanding exactly what happened and how the labs uh, used the data and then published it. So uh, tell us about your efforts to obtain that raw data from the three labs that participated in the uh, 1988-14 <laughs> dating. Uh, I could imagine it was a very arduous, uh, painful task. Yeah. Well, we yes. To put it in context, from the 2000s onward, we started to talk seriously about the Turin Shroud in academic journals, notably with the publication in the mid-2000s by Ray Rogers in Thermochimica ACTA, which really made a big splash because it added with what is known as the fringe genetics to try to give some grist to the hypothesis of what is known as the French ruling. That's the sample would have been sewn up after the 1532 fire that took place in Chambéry. And so I would say that in addition, we had from the 2010s an article that was really very important, which was the article by Marco Riani and Anthony Atkinson on the pure statistics of the Nature article showing that there was a linearity in the dating. That is to say that the closer we got to the center of the shroud in the direction of the length, the more we obtained radiocarbon dates that were in our vicinity, to the point that if we had continued these measurements there, they would have been in the future, in our own future. So from there, the question arose, what was the purpose of making averages or obtaining an interval concerning this dating, since in fact, the average had no more sense. It had become absurd. If we have a point with a number like 360, after 361, 362, 363, 364, 365, and we decide to take only that, we realize that in fact, if we make the average, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any interest. And that was the conclusion that Marco Riani's team came to. And this is really fundamental. But in fact, they did it from data that were already debuted at the time. And so I said that in 2017, I am preparing to go to a conference that is for me a bit the last conference because I am a bit tired of the subject of the Shroud of Turin. I get there, I want to change the subject and I'm preparing a paper entitled, Do We Really Need New Evidences and Arguments About the Turin Shroud? So I get to Washington State, I land in Seattle, and then I get a reply from the British Museum, which sends me the raw data and all the documentation. 
They send me 200 pages of documentation with all the archives they had. The main reports sent by Zurich, by Toussaint, and by Oxford. So in fact, I thought I would end it with a little farewell paper. Let's say end it with something that was a little bit like a nose-thumbing to the world of analogous saints. I found myself immersed in it and I had it in my computer while I was participating in this conference. All the documents that had been researched for 30 years by all the holy analogists to whom I said hello and had dinner with. And I couldn't share them too much. I shared them with only one person who was Joe Marino at the time. And so from then on, I realized that I had obviously not finished, as I hoped, with the Shroud of Turin. And I had to continue, in fact, what was successful for me. But in fact, the task was not really difficult there. It was difficult to find a team of statisticians it was difficult to find a team of statisticians who wanted to look at the data that I had at my disposal because I had consulted a few statisticians and many of them gave me answers that were like, yes, but I don't understand this data at all. I don't want to put my nose into it because it is absolutely not my specialty. I was saying, but listen, these data are already there by themselves. Without a huge statistical background, I can understand them. How is it that you, who are a professor of statistics, can understand them? So in fact, it was simply because the subject was too sulfurous. They didn't want to break their careers by studying the Shroud of Turin. So I asked Emanuela Marinelli if she didn't know a statistician and things happened in a rather remarkable way. I asked Emanuela and she said, look, I don't know any at the moment, but I'll see. A few days later, she gave a conference on the Shroud of Turin in Sicily. A statistician showed up without her asking anything at the end of the conference, and he made a request that was quite exceptional. And he said, look, I don't know, but you might need me one day. Let me know. And so Emanuela said, we need you right now. Come with us. Do you agree? He said, yes, yes, I agree. And so from there, he recruited one of his students who did the measurements. And it was necessary, obviously, afterwards to try the measurements without knowing, moreover, that it was the Shroud of Turin that he was studying. So it was done blindly. And afterwards, the hardest part was to publish in a magazine because some magazines refused to examine our article even though it was perfectly in line with the editorial line. They refused it by principle because there too, it was the Shroud of Turin. It was too sulfurous. So I remembered and I always had in mind that the journal Archaeometry was the journal of the Oxford Laboratory and that it had already had rather favorable publications on the Shroud of Turin. I knew that it wasn't closed to them and moreover it was very important, very significant because it was obviously the same department that had managed this dating in 1988. And so I decided to submit it to them. And after a rather long process, about 10 months, they accepted it.
Yeah, very interesting. You know, what one thing that comes out of what you're talking about is that you have to have such a wide breadth of different disciplines, statistics, law, every, you name it, everything. And uh, so uh, tell us quickly, uh, so again, uh, what were the results that you found that, that really came out of uh, the work that you did in, in getting the, the results released and, and, uh, and your efforts there? Well, I would say that it actually showed us the importance of raw data analysis in any publication. That is, when you look at the raw data, when you redo all the traditional statistical tests, you can already see that the Nature publication could not have been accepted. Because what the laboratories did was that they averaged their raw data and they presented it in such a way that in the end it was more acceptable than it would have been. But when you look at the raw data numbers that came out of the computers, that's the data that we have for Arizona or the reports that were already provided to the British Museum. You see that those data are even more heterogeneous than the data that were presented in Nature. So what we did was to analyze the notes, the data that we had in Nature that were presented in Nature. We analyzed them with a new system that was not present in 1988 called OXCO. So OXCO is for Oxford Calibration and it is used to try to, let's say that is a reflection that is more Bayesian and that is used to obtain by percentage evaluating if there are problems within the stating. That is, if these dates are homogeneous with the same rate of carbon-14. And we already realized with the nature data that this one was not going well. But obviously, it becomes much worse if you analyze all the raw data. So you realize that the homogeneity grows, and all the tests are like that. So the tests show that this heterogeneity of results is much greater. And from there, there was no reason to accept the paper, especially since the documentation found in the British Museum indicates that there are contaminations. And therefore, from there, a contamination of the samples which were found in the laboratory. The laboratory indicates, yes, there we had a blue thread, there we found traces of cotton, Etc. So we could see that the Shroud of Turin, which is supposed to be pure linen, was obviously not. This piece of cloth that had been taken and of which a significant part had already been eliminated to be sure to take in the heart of the shroud was not even the heart of the shroud. So we can say that this publication of nature cannot be qualified as a fiasco because it teaches us some things. But I think it was really a failure, but a failure from which we can recover. Yeah, so uh, given that the uh, the Nature article came out, uh, do you think that the 1989 Nature magazine uh, article will, will ever be retracted? Do you think Nature will uh, put a retraction out against that? Well, I would say that the reception of our article was very good and all the laboratories of 1988 were aware of it. I can guarantee you that. So we didn't have too many disputes as there can be many about articles concerning the Shroud of Turin in all fields. 
So I would say that if you want our documentation, all the papers that we have been able to accumulate, all the archives that I have been able to analyze, it shows in fact that we are in the middle of a crisis with this article of nature. It shows that in fact we are in the middle of a crisis of reproducibility and it is a crisis to which the newspapers are currently very sensitive. The reproducibility crisis is the fact that we are not able in many scientific publications to reproduce the results that have been put forward and that have sometimes made a lot of noise. So some people say that it can go up to 10%, 20% of the results, 30% of the results. And in fact, this is done because we have a human tendency not to see failures, to publish only the successes, to put them under implementation, to have a pressure to publish. So all that fits into this framework. So I would say that there are still additional elements to be acquired in order to provide a complete file that would allow us to move towards this withdrawal of the Nature article. But I would say that here again, the fundamental question is why consider such a withdrawal? Because the more time passes, I would say the more difficult it is to hide the facts that we present in our publication. And the only way to support the 1988 dating is not to dive into our publication, not to read exactly all our conclusions or to try to twist them. So I don't know exactly what the utility would be other than a media utility of making this withdrawal of the nature paper. So at this point, I would say it's not really on the agenda. I think it would be more useful to continue to accumulate data of all kinds on the shot of Turin. Yeah, very interesting. You know, it was I, I thought it was very interesting too, going back to now the announcement of the of the of the dating of the shroud through the three laboratories and i found it interesting on how they did it there were the three men sitting in front of a backboard and uh, a blackboard and behind them were the numbers 1260 to 1390 exclamation point uh with that written on it and i remember the quote but i i don't remember who said it but um he said well how did the how did the shroud come about or he was asked that and he said he basically said, uh, someone just got a piece of linen, faked it up and flogged it. And what I think comes out of your discussion and what you found is really ironic is that their presentation was faked up and flogged. What do you think their motivations were for, uh, for this, uh, this result and uh, the way they presented the re result? So let's just say that for my part, I don't think we should be so harsh on the scientists unless we have others who have done this dating of 1988, unless we have other evidence. And right now, we don't really have any. In fact, I think they're just human. Let's leave it at that. And they haven't been able to step back from their personal beliefs. A lot of them were obviously opposed to the authenticity and they didn't step back enough from the issues of their time. They were convinced that they were on the right side of history. And so they probably didn't have enough motivation to try to say at some point, stop, let's stop here. 
especially since obviously there were financial mistakes behind it. Career stakes, since it was a new dating method and they had no right to make mistakes. And obviously it was very difficult to explain how three control dates could be right and one date the most interesting date could be obviously wrong. So I would say that the attention to detail that was paid was largely inadequate. All the more so since it must be seen that we were not really in the spirit of paying real attention to the raw data. Today, I think that an article like that could not be published in nature. So that's why I said it's a failure, but it's not a fiasco. It's not something extraordinary. So unless you take out elements, yes, they didn't respect the protocol. Yes, they did show off a little bit, but they didn't go a gross fake. That's it. So the Prey Codex is a Hungarian manuscript and inside there is a drawing, we'll say to simplify, which concerns a scene which is quite striking, a scene which is divided into two parts. And one sees in particular on the first part, the embalming made on the scene of the lower part, the three husbands who go to the tomb. And this manuscript dates from 1192 to 1195. That was about dating. And obviously, there are details that broadly suggest that the cloth depicted by the artist and the man depicted by the artist is indeed from the Shroud of Turin, which he would have become aware of in the late 12th century, while the cloth would have been in Constantinople, because the ties between Hungary and Constantinople were very strong family ties. So there was a whole debate that started in 1978 when Ian Wilson came up with this hypothesis and that has continued over the last few decades. And in 2021, I published a long article with a lot of references, 80 references, I think, looking at the whole historiography and how the historians could position themselves in favor or against this hypothesis and what were the criteria they used to determine if it was true or false. And in my opinion, after the rather meticulous analysis that I was able to make in an epistemological way, we have no reason to think, as some people do now, that there is no definite link between the Prey Codex and the Shroud of Turin, because the characteristics, and in particular, the four L-shaped holes that appear on the Shroud of Turin, and that also appear on the Prey Codex, and the total nudity of the man and the Prey Codex are obviously found on the man in the Shroud of Turin. One wonders how this came about, how it appeared there, in a context that was moreover favorable to this appearance, which is these very strong links that I have mentioned between Hungary and Constantinople. So in my opinion, this is one more argument, a historical argument this time against dating. So we can say that we have a whole range of arguments that allow us to say that this dating obviously does not reflect the real age of the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. I'd love to uh, actually spend the whole uh, session with you, but uh, we're just about out of time.
Um, and uh, otherwise, I'd love to continue the discussion on the Prey Codex and otherwise. But is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention before we close? Yes, because just like that, to finish, I would say that the Shroud of Turin, you know, it is often said that it is a challenge to the intelligence, but it is a door of entry, I would say, to better understand us in our time. And it offers us a view of the Cathedral of Science in which we are all today, that we all frequent every day. And it's important to be aware of that because it allows us to add our faith journey, a science journey, and to see how these two can come together. And so the Shroud of Turin is a silent witness. It is a painful witness, but it can really have resonated strongly in every sense in our time in our interiority. And for that, I am always moved to think that it played a very big role in my conversation, and therefore that it also led me to become a Catholic. It played a role, maybe not an essential role, but at least it led me to have a personal relationship with Jesus. So that's why it's also a great thing. Thank you. Uh, merci, merci, merci. Uh, Tristan, <laughs> really good. Merci. <laughs> Merci à vous. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, with that, uh, again, thank you so much and thank you for being part of this. And uh, otherwise, uh, to the audience, please stay tuned for more videos uh, in this series on the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Tristan, uh, thank you so much. Merci. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.